Turn with me in your Bibles tonight to Hebrews chapter number 11, the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. As I have studied for tonight's message, I've prepared a series of messages, not just for tonight. Amen. Don't get nervous. Uh, I don't know if the Lord will let us do a series. Uh, If He won't, what we're going to look at tonight will preach fine on its own. But uh, if He lets us, we may spend a few Sunday nights in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. You know, you could spend months and months and months uh, expounding on the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Some have called this the Hall of Faith, Hall of Fame of Faith, and so on and so forth. Uh, I would propose to you that uh, the 11th chapter of Hebrews is less about the people and more about the faith. And uh, as you go through the 11th chapter, I've seen that it sort of divides itself into about four or five categories. Uh, And faith is presented in different ways. What faith does is presented in different ways. But there are some consistencies in it all throughout the 11th chapter. And so tonight I want us to take a few moments and look at the simplicity of faith. Let's begin reading at verse number 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it he, being dead, yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and thank you for your word. I pray that you'd bless it to our hearts tonight and that you'd accomplish your perfect will in us. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Here in a few moments, we're going to say a word about those that are mentioned in the verses that we've read tonight. But I find that the 11th chapter sort of separates itself this way. Verses 1 through 7 present to us faith during the pre-flood period of the age of human history. Or a big fancy word for it is the antediluvian age. Then you find faith presented in verse number 8 down to verse number 22 during the patriarchal age. In other words, the times when the patriarchs lived, when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph lived. You see faith moving and working in a family. Let me say I'm thankful that faith can work in a family. I'm thankful when we see it in Abraham, it began with the daddy, began with the patriarch. And then it it, it was perpetuated all the way down. We get to Moses and uh, we see it spread to an entire nation. And there we see the progression 
of faith. I think it's interesting. It says in verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. So that speaks of his parents' faith. And then in verse 24, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Then you see faith in the life of Moses. You see that expressed in verse 28. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. But then in verse 29, you have something interesting. Mentioned for the first time in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith they, you have collective faith. So you see that the faith of Moses' parents that was invested in his life bore fruit in the entire nation of Israel. And so you see it sort of there in the, uh, the progression of faith. Verses 30 and 31 present to us faith in the promised land. Isn't it interesting that faith isn't mentioned uh, any time between when they passed through the dry sea and when the walls of Jericho fell? Faith isn't mentioned in correlation to the giving of the law. Why? Because the law is not of faith. Faith isn't mentioned during the 40 years of wandering. Why? Because they stumbled through unbelief, the Hebrew writer had already told us. But then in that great act of faith, when they trusted God and executed His plan for the destruction and defeat of the city of Jericho, all of a sudden you see the walls falling in response to faith. And the next thing is Rahab. We see that faith has the ability to destroy, but also to preserve. In other words, it has the ability to crumble the wall, but save the harlot that lived in the wall. And isn't it good to know that one of these days the world will be destroyed, but those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ be preserved. I also think it's, and I'm not trying to preach my whole series, I promise you, but I also think it's interesting that the only two stories of faith given concerning the promised land is that the walls fell and that a prostitute was saved. That tells you that the salvation of the sinner is just as great a miracle as the destruction of those walls. And then you have sort of the uh, collective picture, collaborative picture of what faith, or we might say the possibilities of faith. And it goes from verse 32 on down to the end of the chapter. If the Hebrew writer says that time would fail him to tell us, then I promise you time would fail me to tell you. But it sort of divides itself into those categories. And they each tell us something different about faith and what faith does and what faith can do and what faith can do through us and in us. But in the first seven chapters, we have faith in the simplicity of its nature. Faith is a very simple thing. If I was to give you a working definition or practical definition, I'd tell you that faith is believing God's Word and living in accordance with that belief. It's trusting God because you've judged Him to be faithful. But the Hebrews writer gives us what we call a little more technical definition of what faith is. Sort of the ingredients of faith or a definition of what faith truly is at its essence in verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, think about those two words for just a moment. It's substance and it's evidence. Now, according to the world's twisted view of what faith is, that is completely opposite to what the world perceives faith to be. The world perceives faith to be the ramblings of a madman or the gripping of a phantom. But God, when He, denied, when he defines faith for it, He says it's both substance and evidence. And the reality of it is found in verse number 3. Why is it that way to the world? The reason they view faith that way is because they do not have true biblical faith. Let me say that there is a difference between the puffed-up, hallmark version of faith that the world speaks of, which is really, when we speak of faith, what it really means in the world's definition is the intertwining of yourself with an ideal. 
to the biblical truth of what faith is. Look at verse 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Now notice this premise. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, faith accepts that there is a reality beyond the tangible. And faith responds in confidence to that reality. Things beyond what we can taste, smell, see, and feel. Things that do not appeal, nor do they appear to our natural senses, but are real nonetheless. We could lump a lot of things into that category, but I'd say the first thing that we could lump into that category would be God Himself. Because though we can experience God in a spiritual sense, we cannot see Him, that's what the Bible teaches, whom having not seen, we cannot feel Him in a physical, tangible sense or, or a sense that could be measured maybe upon a machine or upon a scientific instrument. I don't know about you, but I can't smell Him. Amen? Can't taste Him. I know the Hebrew writer says to taste and see that the Lord is good. But we understand that doesn't mean taste in a physical sense. And so God Himself must be accepted by faith. And yet we find that there is evidence everywhere, if we're a thinking person, for the reality of God. And that gives us this one irrefutable truth that faith and logic are not enemies, one of the other. But rather, faith accepts a premise that logic in and of itself, or can I put it this way, that human experience must deny. And so spiritual experience must adopt it. The human experience cannot put down on paper, nor can it give you hard data, nor can it measure it out with scientific means what it means to know God. But does that make it any less a reality? In fact, the truth is, how many does it take to condemn a man to death in a court of law? Not very many. If just one witness, if it's credible enough, or let's say, even if they're not credible, you get two or three together, you know what that's called? That's called circumstantial evidence. And they get these witnesses together, that's enough to take a man's life. Why is it that that's not enough to give a man life? The truth of the matter is, we have a whole room full of people that are here tonight that each one would testify that God is real, that I know Him, that He works in my life. Now, that sounds like evidence to me, doesn't it to you? So faith is the evidence of things not seen. The response in a person's life as they put their hope and their trust in the Word of God. So it gives us a little bit of a definition of faith, but then it gives us the capacity of what faith can do. It says in verse 2, For by it the elders obtained a good report. Now, why does it say that at the beginning of the chapter? Well, there's two reasons, because here in a moment, it's going to give us about 20 different examples of how they obtained a good report through faith, and really many, many more if you were to count the collage that's given to us in the last 12 or so verses. But I believe part of the reason is because that's the greatest thing that faith can do. The greatest thing that faith can do is save you. The greatest thing that faith can do is not to fill your bank account. That's one of the things that's always astounded me by this uh, whole spectrum and circus of televangelists, is that they think the greatest message they can give you is that God can make you rich. And yet the Bible teaches that this world passeth away and the lust thereof. In fact, the Bible teaches me that God can give us something far grander than just money, 
that passeth away, that withereth as the grass does in the sun. God can give us something far grander than that, and that's eternal salvation. Now, that's something greater that faith can do. That's something grander that faith can do. A greater miracle than the tumbling of the walls of Jericho or the conception of the promised child Isaac or uh, the deliverance through the Red Sea is that God could save a sinner like me, that I could obtain a good report through putting my faith in the finished work of Calvary. And then he gives us the grandest expression of this faith in verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Commentators have said, and I would agree with this, that that is the greatest commitment of faith that a human being can have, is to believe Genesis 1-1. In fact, why should we struggle with any portion of the Word of God if we can trust Genesis 1-1? If you can believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then why should anything be on the spectrum of God's sovereign ability? And so it gives us this working premise and principle. The things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. It tells me that even though faith is the evidence of things not seen, it also tells me that some of the things that are seen are evidence of faith. And that's what the Hebrew writer spends the next little while teaching and telling us. And so we have three examples given to us in the next few verses. I want to say, first off, we see simplicity in the worship. Of faith, Or we see faith worshiping. Look at verse number 4. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Now something you're going to find in the Word of God is this truth. And I'm going to try to say this as correctly as, I, as I'm able to. Faith responds to revealed truth. The Bible says that faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. The more a person knows, the greater responsibility they have and the greater capacity they have to respond in faith. That's the reason that you and I, we, everybody moans about what dark times we live in. All the times we live in are not so dark. We have a completed Bible. Boy, that's something they didn't have uh, for the first period of human history. We have a completed Bible canonized, chronologicized, if that's a word. (laughs) We've got a Bible, and so we can respond in faith and in obedience. At this time in human history, I don't know how much Bible that they had. I sort of believe that man's always been writing God's Word down. I know that they'd tell us that for the first, uh, you know, few thousand years of human history or whatever, first few hundred, there was no uh, ability to write. But I don't know if I believe that, amen? Because it seems like man's account of the creation is pretty clear, doesn't it to you? Six literal days and what took place on each of those days. And then on the seventh day, God rested. And so it seems to me like man's always sort of had the ability, one way or the other, to jot something down in some capacity. But I don't believe they had the, the type of Bible that we have today. In fact, I know that they didn't. Much of the Bible was not pinned down. And in fact, when you get back in this early a time, uh, we don't know how much of it was pinned down, but probably wasn't compiled and stamped with the King James on it. They didn't have that at that time. And so they responded to God in the way that God had revealed Himself to them. And that's why in these early examples, we don't have a lot spoken of. In fact, if you go to the next next, uh, section of verses, we're not going to, but you find that God required a little bit more out of people. 
And then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. Why is that? Because he revealed a little bit more and a little bit more. And so by going to the earliest stage in faith, what we really find is the purity of faith. What faith is at its very basic essence, and the first example given to us is Abel and the way he worshipped God. Notice a few things it says about it. Now, I'm sort of, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm sort of taken for granted. Most of us in this room are familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. We know how it is that Abel brought of the, the firstlings of the flock and how that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground, how they presented it to the Lord, and how that God had respect unto Abel's offering, but He did not have respect unto Cain's offering. Most of us are aware how that Cain got angry and at some point he slew his brother and that God, because of that, condemned Cain to the life of a vagabond, rejected his offering, but then rejected him as a person. Most of us, I think, are familiar with that story. But the first truth that's given, this is God's testimony about what happened. The Lord says that Abel's offering was more excellent than Cain's. What does it mean for something to be excellent? Now, I'm, I'm not a, what is it, etymologist? Is that it, etymologist? I'm not an entomologist either, but we don't have no bug problems. But I sure ain't no etymologist. But I understand that the word excellence is derived from the idea of something that excels. In other words, it's not that what Cain gave was all that bad. It's just that what Abel gave was just what God was looking for. And in fact, it followed the exact pattern that God had set forth. The only way that we can worship properly is to worship in spirit and in truth. The only way to do that is to respond in faith to the revealed Word of God concerning what worship is, and that's what Abel had done. There had been a pattern that had been set down whenever the the first parents, Adam and Eve, were expelled from the Garden of Eden. They had sinned, they had done wrong, they had, they had messed up, and God took and slew an animal and draped them in the skins of that animal. And a pattern was set forth that only through the shedding of blood could the remission of sins take place. I'm sure that that didn't make a lot of sense. Human understanding and reasoning would have rejected that and dismissed it out of hand. But again, faith is not something that is the enemy of logic and reason, but it begins with the premise that there is a spiritual realm and spiritual truths, and there is a God that is a spirit, and we must worship Him in spirit and in truth, and that He has certain standards and expectations. If I'm going to be right with Him, I've got to do it the way that He did it. In fact, I kind of like this. This, this is maybe not really what we're preaching on, but... But look what it says in verse 11 of this chapter. And we'll get to this maybe next week. But look what it says. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Why? Because she judged him faithful who had promised. That's the backbone of biblical faith is that we judge God faithful. In other words, if I do what he's asked me to do, then he'll do what he's promised to do. And so Abel responded in that way. His was better not because it's what people would expect to be better. His was better not because it was more in keeping with what uh, society would deem appropriate. But his was better for one reason and one reason only, because it was in obedience to the pattern that God had set forth. Let me say that I believe uh, that we have pretty biblical worship around here. I, I believe that and we strive for that. I believe worship is important. I believe there's a lot of churches have a lot of things right, but their worship is wrong. And uh, isn't it sad for worship to be wrong in a house of worship? And the reason I believe that is not necessarily because it's my preference, 
but because I believe we follow a biblical pattern in the way that we worship. I'll go ahead and be honest with you. I don't know that worship, the way we worship, packs them in. At least it hasn't tonight. I don't know that it does. Probably you could get more people through the door if you change the way that you worship. And in fact, when churches started hiring CEOs to be their leaders, as opposed to God-called pastors, that's what they did. Started changing everything so that it would appeal to people. But here's the problem, is there's two sides to that coin. That responds not in faith, but in human reasoning. Because it looks at it and says, we want our worship to be approved by that which we can see and experience and hear. We want to hear the praise of men towards us. We want to see the growth uh, through, the, through, through the vast amounts of people that are coming. Here's the problem, though. They can't see on the other side of the veil. And uh, we have a way through the Word of God of seeing on the other side of the veil. But I just wonder this. I wonder how God would respond to what they call worship. I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of things labeled worship that isn't worship to God. A lot of things. There's a lot of things that, ha- that is slapped with the label Christianity that is a stench to the nostrils of God. Because it's worldly. It's the exact same thing that the world is doing. It's just been rebranded with new lyrics and with new labels and with new brands on it, but it's the exact same thing that the world is doing. Now, let me tell you something. If it's pleasing to the world, it's probably unpleasing to God. You say, that's not biblical preacher. Oh, sure it is. The world is at enmity with God. That's what the book of James says. Whosoever loveth the world is the enemy of God. That's what James said. The book of James, the Bible, that's what your Bible says. In other words, everything that the world appreciates is something that is a stench in the nostrils of God. You say, oh, why is God so difficult? No, why is the world so difficult? He's the Lord God. He changeth not. It's always been abhorrent to Him. It's the world that's flocked to it. Oh, we could probably get more people in here, but is that the measure of things? I don't know about you, but if they're having a fellowship supper, I bet you anything... Uh, that Cain's fruits that he brought would look a lot better than that bloody raw sheep that was laid out. But again, it's not about appealing to humanity. It's about appealing to divinity, appealing to the Lord. It was an excellent sacrifice because it was what the Lord required. If you're ever going to wind up right, you've got to live your life the way the Lord wants you to live. It's that simple. You may have everybody in your life applauding you for the way that you're living. But if you're not living in accordance with the Word of God, you're not pleasing to God. That's the simple truth. So we see the excellence of it, but then we see the acceptance of it. What does it say? Look at the next phrase. By which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. Now, I don't know exactly how it happened. I sort of believe that because there wasn't a Bible uh, in the way we've got a Bible today, that God probably communicated a little bit more open-facedly with humanity at that time. But in some way, God spoke to Abel. I don't know if he answered by fire from heaven like he did for Elijah, or if he merely said, Abel, I accept what you've done. But in some way, Abel was aware, just like Cain was aware God hadn't accepted it, Abel was aware God had accepted it. God testified of His gifts. Now, we're on the other side of the spectrum now. God's not speaking to humanity. 
In other words, in their day, what they could do is behave in the revealed pattern that God had set forth in His Word and then wait to find out if God would accept it. We're on the other side of the spectrum. We have the completed Word of God. So we do not do it that way. We do not do it according to the pattern and then wait and hope God accepts it. Rather, we have the entire explicit Word of God. And what we do, we must lay out in front of the Word of God and do it in accordance with the Word of God. And then and only then will God accept it. We see the accept. I'm not going to dwell on it because I preached that second point with my first point. Amen? But notice the consequence of it. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. Now, there's a phrase that's used, by the way, in verse number 4. It says he obtained witness that he was righteous. It does not say he obtained righteousness through his offering, but rather that he obtained witness that he was righteous. You say, why is that, preacher? Because salvation has always been by faith. Always. It was not the offering of the sacrifice that made him righteous. He was already righteous because he had believed God. Just as Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, Abel believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, but his worship was an expression of the righteousness that dwelt within him when he believed God. In other words, uh, he was not worshiping so he could have faith. He was worshiping because he had faith. And what was the consequence of it? He being dead, yet speaketh, yet liveth. So, in other words, what does that mean? Well, I think it means two things, or there's two applications. I think it means one thing, but I think there's two applications. One of the things that I think it means... Uh, is that though he's dead, we're still talking about him. And we are. Still a testimony this very day. Not very many kids that spend even a month in Sunday school would not be able to tell you the story of Cain and Abel. We're still talking about it. We're still teaching about it. We're still preaching about it. You know what the Bible says? The world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, I understand that you can make the application, and and let's go ahead and make the application. I think there is a test, uh, an, an application that can be made here, too, that because he was righteous, he's still alive. That's certainly true. But I believe even in 1 John chapter 2, when it's speaking of that, what it's saying is this, that the world passeth away and the lust thereof. What's cool now ain't going to be cool then. What looks good now ain't going to look good then. What garners the applause and, and, and accolades in, in society now won't mean a thing then. But he that doeth the will of God, he that invests his life in the things of God all through eternity, that's going to mean something. That's going to matter. So it tells me that when we worship in faith, we worship according to the pattern that God set forth. God accepts that. Why? Because it's according to his pattern. We worship in the way he wants us to worship because after all, worship isn't about you. Worship is about Him. That's the thing that astounds me. Worship, we're all worried about figuring out worship that's going to please people. Worship isn't about people. Worship is about Him. So if we worship in the way He wants us to worship, He'll accept it. And through that, God will testify that it's righteous and that it's what it ought to be. And we'll lay up spiritual treasures as a result of it. So we see first off the worship of faith. Look at the next verse, verse 5. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. 
Turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. I wasn't going to, but turn to Genesis chapter 5. There's so little said about Enoch that I think it'll help us to look at Genesis chapter 5. We see not only the worship of faith, but we see the walk of faith. Now you say, wait a minute, preacher. It doesn't say anything about walking in Hebrews chapter 11. No, it doesn't. But what does it say about Enoch in Genesis chapter number 5? says twice about Enoch, look at verse number 22, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years, and begat sons and daughters. Verse 24 says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, Enoch is a near descendant, in fact, I believe the grandfather of uh, Noah, or the great-grandfather of Noah. And the Bible says very little about him except that he walked with God and was not. What about the commencement of this walk? Now, there's a lot we could say about Methuselah and what the name Methuselah means. Most people would tell you that the name Methuselah uh, means that, uh, uh, when, that, that uh, when he is born, it shall come, or that in his lifetime, it shall come to pass. It shall take place in his lifetime. I, you know, that's probably why it's so long. Amen. <laughs> But I, I'm not going to go into all that. We could, but, but I, and, it's, and it's profitable to do that, but I'm not going to. I believe that we can source Enoch's response and his lifestyle of walking with God prior to even that time in his life. Now, I understand the Bible says at that time he began to walk with God, but you don't begin to do something except you've got a pattern for it. What does the Bible say about Adam and Eve in the garden? Not a whole lot really said about that, but one of the things that God does very carefully tell us is that the Lord came walking in the evening in the, in the cool of the garden and called unto Adam. We believe that to be a theophany. I believe it to be a theophany, a pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says God is a spirit. Well, who's Christ? Christ is the body of the Godhead. He's the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth bodily. And so, in that capacity, the Lord Jesus Christ would walk in fellowship with humanity. Now, that told Enoch something. That taught Enoch that God had a desire to walk with humanity. I believe in this day that we live in, God still has a desire to walk with humanity. I don't think God just wants us to walk for Him. I think God wants us to walk with Him. And two times in the life of Enoch, we're told that God walked with him. What does it mean to walk with God? It denotes a lot of things. For one thing, it denotes the idea of fellowship with the Lord. That's what you do when you're walking together. You usually talk. Another thing, it denotes the idea of unity or harmony between two people. How can two walk together except to be agreed? In other words, Enoch, and can I put it this way? I think it's a clear way to put it. Enoch lived his life in step with God. That's what the walk of faith really is. I believe that Enoch literally walked with God. You don't have to, but that's what I believe about. I believe in the way that Adam had walked with God, that Enoch walked with God. But for us in this day that we live in, I don't expect that if I live right and get prayed up and paid up and do the right thing, that Jesus Christ is going to come walking out of the heavens and walk side by side with me holding my hand in a physical, visible sense. I don't believe that. But I do believe I have the capacity to walk with Him. Not to walk in front of him and not to walk behind him. We went out to eat today and uh, we went to the Cracker Barrel. And I like the Cracker Barrel. Uh, It takes you about 40 years to get seated on a Sunday. 
But I like the Cracker Barrel. I get that country boy breakfast with a sirloin, no fried apples, double hash browns, no grits, double gravy, eggs over well, and biscuits. And I eat every bite of it. And so we went to the Cracker Barrel. And when we got there, we always get out of here late anyway. You know, we wait around for choir practice, and we all got to sit around fuss and argue about where we're going to eat. And so we finally got there, and it was pretty late even then. And then we had to wait 50 minutes, they told us. I don't know how long we waited, but that's what they told us, 50 minutes. And it was funny because you could see the kids fading. We had all the kiddos with us. You could tell, man, they was fading. And as time went on and time went on, it, they was fading more and more and more. And uh, by the time we finally took them into the restaurant, you'd see the mamas and daddies walking with them. And you'd see one little boy, uh, let's say Sawyer, I don't remember who, which one it was, but running ahead of his parents. So that's not the way to walk with somebody. In fact, when a parent sees a child do that, usually what they'll say is they'll call their name and say, Whoa, wait a minute. good way to run out in the middle of something and get hit is to run ahead of somebody. good way to run out in the middle of something and get hit is to walk ahead of God in your life. And then I'd see... Let's say it was Levi. I don't know which one it was, but let's say it was Levi. And Carrie's walking through. In fact, I remember it was because I about pushed Carrie down because he's in my way. And we were walking and we got to the table and, and, and Carrie just stopped. And I was behind him. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to wait on Levi. And Levi, he's just looking around. I would too if everybody looked that tall to me, you know. He's just looking around, looking up at everybody. And a good way to get left behind sometimes is to walk behind. You say, I thought he said he'd never leave me nor forsake me. Well, that's true. That's true. But it might be you miss some things if you don't walk in step with him. It might be you don't get there in time for some things that God has for you if you're slow to be obedient to the Lord. I believe Enoch walked in step with God. What was the conclusion? The Bible says he was not. Now, we have a definition for that in Hebrews chapter 11. The Bible says that God translated him, that he would not see death. In the same manner that God had translated Elijah, that he should not see death, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. In other words, in Enoch's life, his walk of faith was representative, and we see this at the end of the verse. He had this testimony that he pleased God. His walk of faith was not so that he would be righteous, but his walk of faith was an expression of his righteousness. Again, let me put it this way. I hear people argue all the time, is it faith or is it works? Is it faith or is it works? Well, salvation is of faith, plus nothing minus nothing. However, saving faith is working faith. It will express itself. That's not to say that it's the expression of our faith that saves us, because man's saved by faith. But faith works. Faith always works. If it's real faith, it'll express itself in some way. And so his walk, though it was a walk of faith, it was really a walk from faith. Because he believed God, and look what it says in verse number 6, but, he that, but without faith it is impossible to please God. In fact, sort of the Hebrew writer is sort of uh, expounding himself. That's one of the reasons I love the book of Hebrew, is because the Hebrew writer does so much expounding on Old Testament Scripture. He is expounding upon the testimony in Genesis chapter 5. And can I put it the way that maybe we'd put it today? What the Hebrew writer is saying is this. Evidently, Enoch 
pleased God or God wouldn't have took him so they didn't have to see see death. So evidently Enoch was a man of faith because without faith it is impossible to please him. And it's impossible to please him without faith because if you're going to please God, you've got to believe that he is. And you've got to believe that he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so he examines the testimony of Enoch and draws from that that Enoch must have been a person of faith because if he was not a person of faith, he would not have walked with God. In other words, he wasn't a person of faith because he walked with God, but rather he walked with God because he was a person of faith. You say, what does that mean to me, preacher, in this day that I live in? It means this. If you're not walking with God, it's because in some way your faith is lacking. There's something about God that you don't believe. Maybe it's you don't believe God judges sin, so you believe that you can live in sin. Maybe it's that you don't believe that you'll be happy living for the Lord. Maybe it's that you believe that if you live for the Lord, you're going to lose people in your life. And it's not worth it to you. But in some way, something within that formula, that he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And I think most everybody in here believes that he is. So it's probably that you're not sure that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I believe he's a rewarder, don't you? I believe that when we live and act in accordance and in obedience to the word of God and in accordance with faith, I believe that God honors that. And I believe we'll be the better for it. So Enoch wasn't, it was, he was not a man of faith because he walked with God, but rather he walked with God because he was a man of faith. Finally, I want to say a word about Noah. Verse number 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. We preached a little bit on that this morning, didn't we? Moved with fear. Prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now, we find something interesting here. We find that Noah did more than the prior people. Noah did more than the people before him had done. Why? Because Noah received something that the people before him hadn't received. What does it say? Notice, first off, that his faith moved him. He was warned of God, and that moved him. God made known to Noah that at such a time he was going to destroy the earth with a flood. And Noah had a decision at that point. Noah could either dismiss what God had told him, as everyone else in his day was doing, or he could believe God and allow it to trouble him and unsettle him so that he might live and act in accordance with what God had said. I'm going to try to say this very carefully. Uh, we sort of have a wall we put up when we hear God speak. And we have a choice whether to keep that wall up or to take it down. You know what we do when God speaks to us? We have, In fact, we probably have several walls. One of the walls we have is we say, that's for somebody else. Noah could have probably said that. He could have probably said, God must be talking to somebody else. Another wall that we have uh, that we put up sometimes is to say uh, that the Word of God or maybe the preacher of God doesn't know what he's talking about or uh, there's something about him that would cause his message or, or truth to be invalid. And so that's a wall that we leave up. Sometimes the wall that we put up is we say that that's good for some, but it's not good for me. Sometimes the wall that we put up, and very few put this up, at least admittedly, but they say the Word of God isn't true. 
We sort of have some walls that we put up to keep ourselves from being moved by the Word of God. I think it's good when we start tearing those walls down and allow God to move us if He's going to move us. Can I tell you something? You don't have to worry about God moving you when you don't need to be moved. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry that the preacher is going to get up and preach and the Spirit of God's going to convict you about something He don't need to convict you about. If God speaks to you, it's because you need to be spoken to. God deals with you, it's because you need to be dealt with. There's not a thing God's going to take from you but what it needs to be took from you. God's not just sitting up in heaven saying, Oh, who can I rob something from today? It all belongs to Him. And He wants us to have things. and He wants us to have uh, influences in our life and people in our lives and opportunities in our life. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So that tells me the only kind of gifts God takes away is bad gifts. And there are such things as bad gifts. <laughs> You don't have to be worried about that. Go ahead and tear those walls down and say, Lord, I'm yours. Speak to me. Speak to me through your word, through the preaching of your word. Speak to me through the written word, the word of God. Speak to me through the moving and wooing of the Holy Spirit. God, move me if I need to be moved. Well, his faith moved him. God warned him and he believed God and allowed it to move him. He was moved with fear. Then we see that his faith motivated him. And what was the result? He built an ark to the saving of his house. True faith does work. True faith will cause you and motivate you to live for the Lord. You know why I think so often we struggle? And I know I'm, maybe I'm mowing the, the lawn that's already been mowed here, but part of the reason we struggle staying faithful, it's because we have a deficit in the faith department. We're missing something in the, in the faith department. There's something in our life missing as far as trusting God and believing His Word about a matter. You see, the truth of the matter is, if we really believe God is all He says He is, it's going to make us live for Him. If we really believe God will do everything He says He's going to do, it'll make us live for Him. Again, remember that faith is not the enemy of logic, but it just works off a set of principles that this world is not the only thing that there is, that God is real, that God is in heaven, that God's the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, that the Word of God is true. And so it uses those as the ingredients or the components of its reasoning. And so oftentimes the reason that we don't have the same conclusion that those written about in Hebrews chapter 11 had is because we're missing some of those ingredients. We're missing some of those components. We have doubt concerning the Word of God or the promises of God. Because Noah believed God, it caused him to work. It caused him to serve. It caused him to build. It caused him to do something. I know, and everybody, you know it's funny, because the examples that everyone wants to run to when there's preaching like this is very, very few and far between. Very, very few and far between. There's always some that are not able to serve the Lord in a physical capacity. I'm aware of that. There's always some that aren't able. But what I've found is this, that most of the time, those that are uh, pointing to those examples are usually the ones that are able to serve the Lord, but are looking for an out to not have to serve Him. The truth of the matter is, we, we know whether we can serve God or not. We're not fooling anyone. We know whether we can serve. We know whether we can be at church. We know whether we can read our Bibles. We know whether we can witness. We know whether we can be there to serve. We know that. 
And God knows it too. God knows it too. Everybody, every time snow comes around, and we got a pretty good amount of it this year, there's always people that are, uh, that are nervous about missing church. Hey, listen, it don't, it don't make me nervous. Uh, because here's the thing, you can either get there or you can't get there, and you don't answer to me, you answer to God over it. You answer to Him. I promise you, I don't think anybody in this room is scared of me, but if they are, you've got nothing to be scared of in me. You're going to answer to somebody a lot more powerful than I am. You're going to answer the Lord over it. You know whether you can. You know whether you can't. You know what you can do and what you can't do. More importantly, God knows what you can do and what you can't do. And once you believe that truth, it'll motivate you to do all you can. Once you accept that truth, God really does know what I can and can't do in my life. He knows my heart. He knows my abilities. He knows my opportunities. Once you know that then that's going to motivate you to serve Him to the best of your ability if you care what God thinks about your life. So I see that it motivated Him. But notice the third thing, and I'm done. We see that it marked Him. Look what it says at the end of this verse. It says, "...by the which He condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith." What does that mean, that He condemned the world? What it means is this, through him, God gave a testimony of the flood that was coming and of the opportunity for preservation and protection that God would allow. Through Noah, and by the way, Noah, you know the Bible says that as it was in the days of Lot and Noah, and and, and we always want to look, we always want to look at the conditions of those days. Maybe we ought to look at the characters of those days. Because you know what we find in these last days? We find that there's basically two kinds of Christians, really hot and really cold. Oh, I know there's some lukewarm. I'm not saying there's not. But what I'm saying is if you were to really... There's some like Noah that are staying faithful. And there's some like Lot that are moving to Sodom. There's some like Noah that are staying faithful. And then there's some like Lot that are moving to Sodom. And there's not a whole lot of in-between. We've never lived... Oh, I know they paint up a lot of stuff with religious paint that's not really religious. But I'd say that Sodom had a few church houses in it. I'd say Sodom had a few church... If America has a few Sodomite churches in it, I'd say Sodom had a few Sodomite churches in it. I'm sure there was some religion in Sodom. But what I'm saying is, as it relates to Christians, you have those that are stemming the tide and standing against it, and then those that are wholeheartedly embracing the worldliness of the day that we live in. When Noah built the ark, it sent a message to this world that God hates sin and that He will judge it, but that God will save those that would put their faith in His warning and in His Word. In other words, Noah was a different kind of man than those that lived in those days. And through his testimony, he was able to make an impact. Oh, it was just eight folks on that ark, you'd say. I'm glad it was eight. If it hadn't been for those eight, you and I wouldn't be here today to the saving of his house. He didn't win everybody, but he won some. How? Because he had a faith, a biblical faith, and that biblical faith expressed itself through obedience and service to the Lord. True biblical faith will serve God. It will serve God. If it's biblical faith, it will serve God. If it's carnal faith, it'll serve self. 
If it's lazy faith or apathetic faith, a faith that is merely a shell of what faith truly is, then it'll do nothing. But true faith that cometh by the Word of God will always respond in obedience to God's Word.